0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church. We exist to seek the glory of God for the good of Brookhaven. We do this through worship that is reformed, discipleship that's relational, and mission that's neighborly. If you want to know more about Christianity or our church home, please visit our website, faithbrookhaven.org. Now for today's podcast. I'm not the normal song leader, though I do play one on television. This morning, we're, we're going to hear Mark's version of the Christmas story. And he's different from the other three gospel writers. Just to use, we have lots of doctors, just to use a medical analogy. Matthew, Luke, and John, they're kind of like triage nurses. You go in and it's no rush. They get information, your blood pressure, cholesterol checks, all those kind of things before You're admitted to their care. Mark is an emergency room doctor. And there's been a tragedy. And there's no time for formalities. It is an emergency. And so he comes in without being polite, and he just gets to the point. It's very abrupt. And so I want you to see that as a difference as we read this version of the Christmas story. He takes us all the way. To the point of the gospel. So let's uh, follow along with me as I read from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, "'You are My beloved Son.'" With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to Him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Let's pray and ask blessings of the Lord on our time in this passage. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that You would come into our hearts, into our minds, into our thoughts as we ponder this marvelous retelling of how You were introduced into our world. And we ask, Lord, that as You abruptly entered time and space, then You would do so now by Your Spirit. Lord, we ask that You would help us and lead us and nurture us toward a greater understanding of our need of You and a greater, Lord, grasp of just how far You've gone to prove Your love and to rescue Your people. And so we pray for this kindness in Jesus' name. So you see the book ends there. Verse 1, verse 14, the beginning of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel, and Jesus uttering, The time is fulfilled here. Something has indeed happened. It's the crying in the wilderness, though, that caught my attention reading this. That's the abrupt part. There's one crying, shouting, proclaiming, garnering attention any way he can, one crying, and then there's a wilderness. Wilderness, not in the sense we take it like trees and briars and things you have to cut through. The wilderness was always an image of what our ultimate reality is apart from God. Alienation, darkness, misery, despair, The loneliness of wandering deeper and deeper into, well, what we would call hell. That's what the wilderness embodies. But here is a voice breaking into that wilderness. We don't want to miss that point. C.S. Lewis called the gospel of Jesus an invasion. Someone from elsewhere coming in and invading the kingdom of the world and there beginning this revolution I think of this as kind of an analogy of a show I used to enjoy watching. Not enjoy in the sense it was good, but enjoyed because there was always hope in it. It was a show on a called Intervention. Maybe you watched it. I think they still show replays of it. Intervention was a show that followed as a documentary a person addicted to some kind of medication, a drug of choice that had taken over their lives. And in intervention, there was always a way of getting at the heart of why this person was the way they were. They weren't just bad people that did bad things. It was complicated. There were two parts to the show. One part was they would show a collage of photographs. Kind of scattered. But they were photographs of that person's history all throughout. And they would piece together the photos and you would get a full picture that this person is a human And there's a lot of complications in their life. Little kids that grow into troubled teens and so forth is the way it goes. Usually there was abuse. Usually there was a family history of addiction. And so you get a complete picture through the portrait. But the turning point is when the family, in a very challenging emotional way, comes, gathers together, and they meet the addict. And they sit down with him and they open up letters to them. And they read letters. So each person is reading something that tells of their love, that tells of their commitment to them, that tells them of the joy they find in them so that it will lead them to make the right choices. There's also warnings of consequences if the help is not received. So every show had the same pattern. They would show this collage of pictures representing the family history, and then they would share these letters that was meant to compel the great help that was available. Okay, strange analogy, but I think that's what Mark is up to. He gives a family history here, and he also shares with us some news that is broken in that says there is life and help and hope in the midst of that. The family history comes from the strange images in this passage. Think about the words that we saw that if you don't have a full, total grasp of the Old Testament would sound awfully strange, and they do. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit shows up in this passage. There's a lot of references to the wilderness and the wildernesses. Satan, whom we've not really seen in the Scriptures until since Genesis is here. There's a prophet who's dressed in camel hair, wearing a leather belt, living out in the desert, eating locusts and honey. That's weird. There's a lot of mention of the Jordan River. What I'm offering to you is that he's giving us these scattered photographs, a collage, that when you begin to look through them, you see, oh, he's painting a family history. Whose family? Your family. My family by faith. He is literally retelling the story of the Old Testament. And he's getting us to to grasp the majesty of what's breaking in when he begins to say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great announcement. Well, where did it begin? Well, why don't we go back to the beginning? This is always a good time of year to remind us of our family history. If you're a believer in Christ, and if you're not, this could be yours for sure. The family history, well, it starts before anything existed. And just like we saw the Trinity present here in this passage, that's where everything begins. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, eternally existing, in a perfect love and honoring relationship, perfect complements, we, we hear often God described as love. Only the God of this Bible is described as love because a God that doesn't exist in complementary persons cannot know what love is. There's nothing to share There's nothing to honor in others. That's what you see present. That was God eternally existing without need of anything other than God Himself. But, motivated by love, which shares, that God created creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit created everything that you see and the culmination of that creation, believe it or not, was you, mankind, Male and female. And just like their God created to eternally exist in a perfect complement of love and honor. Love and honor toward God. And God toward man. And man toward woman. Or man toward mankind. That was the design of it. Satan, whom we see here in this passage, also showed up into that moment. And he was able to tempt our father, Adam. And he interjected into that this whisper, this promise that God is limiting you. And if you were able to just shed yourself of His presence and oversight, you would have power. You will have prestige. You will have all the pleasures that you could possibly dream of. And like us, Adam took the lie. So, in almost an immediate sense, everything that he hoped was going to be suddenly was corrupted. Suddenly was moldy. Suddenly there was sin that had entered our story. So love and honor are corrupted. Relationships meant to complement one another became competition. Eternal existence which God had planned forever and ever became death. Man was sent out, we might say, into a wilderness. But God's not finished. In the midst of even that rebellion, God called a particular man out of all of the nations and He said, I'm with you going to make a particular people group. That's never existed before. Your one task is to show Me to the world. Through you, you will be a light to all of the nations. We know that gentleman as Abraham. Your family will grow from a tribe to a nation to a kingdom. And all of the earth will be blessed because you have existed with Me. Well, they actually became to be called by one of their forefathers' names, Israel. Which means, wrestles with God, and indeed they did. The people of God find themselves at one point in our story enslaved by a powerful tyranny For 400 years of degradation and misery and pain and fear and loneliness, the people of God felt abandoned. They had forgotten the stories. They had forgotten that God was and is and is to come. They cried and they longed and they begged. There was silence. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, God answers their cries and intervention. A sudden invasion where He comes into their presence and calls them out of slavery. And as long as they were to stay in the presence of God, loving and honoring Him as they were created to do, there would be blessing and fruit and joy and hope. But, they had too much of their father's DNA in them. And so they quickly turned and began to pursue power prestige and counterfeit pleasures apart from God. God, grabbing their attention, allowed them to wander in a wilderness, the place of alienation, for 40 years to kind of clarify their loyalties. God, in His mercy, actually promised the people a land And he led them to cross over a river called Jordan into which they would enter a land of promise. And there, Eden would begin to be reestablished. The presence of God with the people of God in the place of God. That would be the great hope of the world. However, once in the land, the people got fat and lazy and comfortable and covetous. Their national sin was envy. And they began to look at all of the nations around them and they felt like they were missing out on something. So they demanded, we want a king just like all of the nations so that we can have power and prestige and privilege. And those nations worshipped idols, which in a more immediate sense promised, you can have through me power and prestige. And pleasures unending. The result of that, of course, was absolute utter misery. Why? Because they weren't created to live that way. God, again, quite mercifully, I don't know about you, but if someone continues to betray me, there's a point where you say, We're done. God continues to pursue His people. He sends messengers called prophets. And their essential message was to call the people back to God and say, He is there. Your one true love that you're desperately seeking has always been there. Maybe the most prominent of all those was a man whose name literally means My God is Yahweh, Elijah who wore clothes described in our passage. Skins of camel hair and belts. And he lived out in the desert, strangely. And he called the people to come back to God and the people, of course, refused to listen. So God, through Elijah, paints a picture of what He's going to do with His nation because they would not hear Him. They would not listen. So at the end of Elijah's life, God says, I want you to embody the history of my people. And I want you to move across the Jordan, out into foreign lands, into the wilderness. And then God took him. It's during that period that God sends nations. You want the nations, you got it. And they come with ferocity, bloodthirsty nations that overlord this small protectorate. And they have their way with this nation, Judah and Israel. And they take their people away and scatter them. From the place of God, in the presence of God, they find themselves in the wilderness. We actually have recordings of what that felt like for those people. After decade upon decade of not hearing the presence and mercy of God, the people in their misery, in their hope and longing, cried out something like this. Psalm 85. Lord, when will You restore us? Are You going to be angry with us forever? Famously, Lamentations. A book ends this way. It's not the greatest ending of a book. It says, please Lord, restore us unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Have we blown it? Have we gone too far? Are we now to live completely with the consequences of our actions? Isaiah 62, since this passage of Mark speaks of the heavens tearing open, there's a prayer. Isaiah 62 In utter anguish, the people cried, Oh Lord, will you tear open the heavens and come down? Just like in the exodus, during this exile, there was a longing, and there was a crying out, and there was silence. God, they thought, had abandoned them. Then one day, centuries later, a voice crying out in the wilderness shows up and says, make straight the paths of the Lord. And he's wearing camel hair. And he's hanging out at the Jordan River. And the people are coming out to hear his news. That's the family history. Born in Eden. Hardened in Exodus. Abandoned in exile. That is the pattern of the life that drifts away from the thing of God that created them. So that is the place where we discover what's really wrong with us. Why we are the way we are and why others are the way they are. We share that family history. But in this passage, there's a family testimony. There are letters being shared in this intervention. Let's hear those. Four letters. Four letters coming from four witnesses. John himself, the Trinity, Satan even, Jesus the Christ. Those are the four witnesses that are sitting down and they're reading the letters to our desperation. Witness one. This final prophet dressed in camel hair comes and he says the words that were spoken by Isaiah and he's owning them now. He's here the God you've longed for, the God that you've assumed has abandoned you, the God that you would conclude has certainly had enough of our selfish, bratty ways has showed up. He is here. And I'm announcing this Gospel right now. There's something new about this though. There's something different from the others. Because the people from Jerusalem and Judea, they're going out to be baptized for their sins. That was something reserved only for Gentiles, the peoples who didn't belong to Abraham, who when they decided to come and join themselves to the people of God, they had to go through ritual washings. Here, John is demonstrating there's something new about this. There's something about your pedigree is no longer what matters. Your religious upbringing and history, that's no longer what is significant in this Gospel. He's stepped in, and there's a renewal. There's baptism. There's the forgiveness of sins. There's confession. That's hope for God's people. Witness 2, you see the Trinity. Jesus comes to be baptized by John. More on that in a moment. But He comes up out of the water, and immediately the heavens hear the words are being torn open. You remember the prayer of Isaiah? Oh, that you would tear the heavens open and come down. Okay. And so He does. And we see this strange image of the Spirit hovering just like the Spirit did in the creation. But this time, there's a new creation being introduced. The voice from heaven is the Father saying, You are My beloved Son. With You I'm well pleased. Do you see that the Trinity has shown up and in a, another stroke of creative wonder and genius are speaking about a new age, a new creation. And it's centered around their love and their honor. The Father doting over His Son. It's, it's a declaration of His rights. It's, it's this demonstration of the power of God breaking through. He's going back to the very earliest design of what we were made for. So witness one was John. Witness two, the Trinity. Strangely, witness three is Satan. We don't get the details here, but you do in the other Gospels. That Jesus has gone out in the wilderness. Here's one more more temptation. Like Adam, who fell in the garden. Like Israel, that fell in the exodus. Like Judah that fell in the exile, every time they're tempted with power and prestige and the pleasures of sin, they fail. And here Jesus is offered power. He is given the chance for prestige. And He has is, he is laid out before Him a buffet of pleasure. And here's where the story changes. This is the new Adam. This is the new Israel. And He has succeeded where others have failed. Jesus Jesus is able to take away the sins of the world because He has overcome them. He has survived those temptations. Then there's one more witness. One more letter to be read as they intervene into our hearts. And it's the Christ. That's how... That's how he introduces Jesus. He gives Him these titles. Jesus the Christ. The anointed Savior. The One that we've longed for that would come and make things right. He would restore truth and honor and love. It is all embodied in Him. That's what the word Christ means. But He goes farther and says He's not just a human figure. He's divine. He's the Son of God. And here is the sense of coming into the Jordan River as Elijah went out to demonstrate the exile. Here is Christ coming back through to represent the return of the King. God with His people in His place. That is the majesty of this intervention. Jesus has come and He proclaims the Gospel and He says, the time is here now. All that you've longed for, all of the longings of those prayers and cries, please have mercy, have happened in Me. The interesting thing about this Intervention is, it's well, unlike others. Other types of interventions where you want to get healthy, well, you focus on yourself. You need to get better. You need to get healthy. You focus on you. Here, the Gospel does something unique and says, here's the way to health and life and hope. All eyes off of yourself. All eyes on Christ. Only by gazing at Him and seeing His presence and His power and His forgiveness and His mercy and His promises to His people will there ever be help. Mark has come with emergency room fervor and he has announced the Gospel. He's announced what we all long for. So here's my summary. The Gospel... A word used here is the best news you and I could hear. It is about Jesus Christ and His power to transform our lives, our relationships, our worldviews, even our communities. It is a total global project that begins with you. Each human heart special to God created by Him for this relationship of complementary love and honor. The Gospel gives a new identity not based on your past, not based on your present successes or failures, not based on your pedigree, not based on your religious upbringing, not based on your morality, based on Christ. It's way better than when you and I could muster we need to know that because that's the only way we're drawn away from, well, our DNA. Here's what the gospel says. Jesus Christ is at one time your greatest critic and your greatest champion. When we look at Jesus, we have to ask, why the intervention? I'm sure that's great for other people. But what we betray in that is we're just like our fathers and our history and the picture collage shows us. We're, we're like addicts. And we're convinced that all of the problems are outside of us. And we delude ourselves into believing that we're okay because we compare ourselves to other people compared to blank, my life's pretty good. But when Jesus comes to intervene, that's the measure. And no man can stand before the glory of this God who's perfect in every way. We see the evidences of this problem that we're way worse than we think ourselves to be. Way worse than we give ourselves credit. It ekes out constantly every day, even by the time you get in the parking lot. We have idols In our hearts. We pursue power and prestige and pleasure. Usually at the expense of others. That's that's how we're bent. We're so sick that we actually don't want help. And we refuse God's intervention into it. And so it ekes out in our controlling hearts. In our outrageous tempers. In our pretenses. In our coveting. The Gospel reminds us. We require God's intervention. We require Him to come and step in and cry into the wilderness of our hearts. But here's the other part. He's not merely our critic. He's not merely the one that knows us for who we truly are. He's a champion. And He's the one that says, your hope is better than you can imagine. Yes. Yes. You have this sin bent But I have this sin conquering. The only way to get better is to understand you're forgiven. That's what happens in that show intervention. The family has to tell the person we're not going to keep bringing up your past, we're not going to keep bringing up your flaws, we're going to celebrate you forgiven completely. And that's what the Gospel does to us. It's the only way that there's ever a chance to heal in Christ. That's what the Gospel is all about. You see, Christianity is unique from all other faiths, even atheism. Because Christianity is not advice. And it's not instruction merely. It's an announcement. It says what Jesus says here. The time is fulfilled And because something has happened, he says there's a consequence of that. Repent. Turn to me. Believe. Follow me. There you find your hope. The time is now. The voice crying out in the wilderness is the sweetest voice that we'll hear. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we do thank You for... Lord, what is always a challenge to us. We... We would rather think, Lord, that we, we need help, or we need advice, or sometimes we need uh, lifting up. Lord, the truth is we need, we need rescue. We need you to intervene and to deliver us from the wilderness that we find ourselves so often in. And for those, Lord, who've done that, we pray that you would continue to remind that your presence doesn't go away. That we can't extinguish Your grace. That we can't, Lord, thwart Your purposes for us. That even, Lord, when we fail and sin and struggle, You are there to nourish us back to health and lead us again to Christ. And for those that don't know it, Lord, bring awareness. Open up the eyes of their hearts. And help us to see, Lord, Your sweet voice crying. We pray all in Christ's name. Amen.